I was going back and I was watching the highlights from uh, the Super Bowl. Uh, actually, I was um, I had it recorded on my DVR uh, from the original, and so like uh, about three weeks ago or something like that, I went back and I rewatched the Super Bowl, kind of skipping in between plays and skipping commercials so you watch it kind of quickly. And it was it was interesting to see uh, from a second perspective how many opportunities the Kansas City Chiefs had, but they were not su- successful in uh, seizing the moments that they had. Uh, there were repeatedly times that Patrick Mahomes made incredible plays, uh, but the receivers dropped the ball. Drop the ball. Miss the moment. Carpe diem. Seize the day. They miss the moment. Uh, so, for instance, um, there was one particular play. This wouldn't have changed the game because it was late in the game uh, and they were already losing by so much. But it was literally probably what would have been called the greatest pass in Super Bowl history, except the receiver dropped it. Watch, watch this video clip. Watch this. Sorry to all the Kansas City fans. Pete and Whitney, Otto and Nicole. Watch, watch this replay. Look at this. Look at this. Now, in this replay, he's diving, throwing the ball right over the fingertips of Devin White, and the receiver drops the pass. If he catches that pass, even though they lose the game more than likely, if he catches that pass, that's got to be one of the greatest passes in Super Bowl history. It's just ridiculous. But he dropped the pass. He missed the moment. He did not seize the opportunity that was in front of him. Therefore, it doesn't really get talked about very often. Are you with me? Let me, let me show you an even better one uh, that really paints the picture even better. Not in our Super Bowl, but uh, the Super Bowl a few years ago, Super Bowl 50 between the uh, Denver Broncos and the Carolina Panthers. Uh, Cam Newton, somebody said they call him Scam Newton. I don't know. Cam Newton uh, was playing quarterback in this game. They're losing by six points with just over four minutes left. It's the end of the game. This is the time you drive down, especially as a superstar, uh, and win the game. Uh, and so in the middle of this, he fumbles, and I want you to watch how he reacts after he fumbles. Watch this video. All right, this is the scene right here. Watch, watch this view. Did you hear what the announcer said? He jumped away from... He jumped away instead of jumping into the pile, and the other announcer said he made a decision. It wasn't worth it to go in there and get it. This is the Super Bowl for crying out loud. If you're Cam Newton, and I'm not hating on Cam Newton, except for he played for Auburn, um, but I'm not hating on Cam Newton, but 
He's also not a small quarterback. He's not somebody that should be worried about, you know, throwing his body in there a little bit. He's a huge quarterback. And he said he made the decision that it wasn't worth it to go in there and get it. There are moments inside of every football game that you either seize the opportunity or you don't. There are moments that they either catch the pass or they don't. They jump on the fumble or they don't. And it's oftentimes said that most games, especially with professional football teams, are really come down to three or four plays within the game. And who seizes the moment? Who creates the opportunity in that moment? There are moments in every game that must be seized. If you don't capitalize on these, you end up losing the game. It means uh, you're not successful. But if you do capitalize on it, you have an opportunity to win. Can I tell you that there's also moments in life that you have to seize? There are moments where you step into something or step away from it. You quelch your fear and dive into the pile of the mess or you step away from it. And whether you're successful on the other side of that will oftentimes determined, be determined by did you step into it or did you step away from it? Did you operate out of fear or did you operate out of a sense of destiny that I have to uh, seize this moment? Not only are there moments in life that must be seized like that, but there's also moments in the history of a church. In the history of Arise Assembly of God and Arise Church, we have these moments that you have to seize the moment. You have to step into these things in order to become what God has you for you to become. You could say the same thing with the church. There's moment after moment when we talk about the history of the church where somebody had to rise up. Somebody had to seize the moment and step into what God was doing. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But these are those moments you carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment. I believe that our church and even the church, capital C, is in a moment that has to be seized right now. I believe we're drawing close to a momentum of something that's coming and an increased opportunity that if we're not careful, we will shrink back out of fear rather than stepping in out of a sense of destiny. <clears throat> These moments must be seized or we miss them and end up watching them from a distance. So... The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, you have all these books and they represent different things, some of them. Some of them are poetry, some of them are prophetic letters. Some of them are history uh, accounts. Uh, it's like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Joshua. Some of these books are the history of the Hebrew people. First and Second Kings is one of those histories. Originally it was only kings, uh, but these scrolls were so long they needed to divide them. That's the only reason you have First and Second Kings is so that you could divide them. Within the kings, uh, you get these stories of different prophets. Now there's other places that prophets are mentioned too besides kings, but in the kings you get the stories of prophets and prophets oftentimes during that time period heard from God and spoke to the kings and led them in the righteous decrees of the Lord. And so they would get a word from God and share it with the king. Um, in the account we're about to read though, it's not a, a word going to the king. It's the account of one prophet who's very famous. You've probably heard of his name before. It's Elijah. I named my son Elijah because Elijah is my favorite prophet. I, I love Elijah. He called fire down from heaven and talked trash as he did it. I like Elijah. He's my guy. And so I want my son to be that kind of man of character and honor and power in the Holy Spirit. And so we named him Elijah. And so we're looking at this account of Elijah. And now he is, even though he's not old and gray or anything like that, he's about to be taken up into heaven. And he's going to pass the mantle of the anointing of God onto his protege, his young protege by the name of, y'all know it? 
Elisha. See, I don't even know why I'm preaching this. Y'all could do it yourselves. 2 Kings chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 14, but we're going to stop along the journey, and I think it's verse 1 through 6 we're going to read first, if that's okay. It says, When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Hmm, that's going to go somewhere. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Hmm, okay. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Two of them walked on. Let me, let me make some points. We're going to read further in a second, but let me make some points. Number one, if you're taking notes, can you sense what the Lord, what the Spirit is doing? Can you sense what the Spirit is doing? There, there's this connection that's happening right here. There's nowhere prior to us reading uh, that would explain this any other way. Then there seemed to be such a connection between the, the man of God and the Spirit of God that he would recognize what the Spirit is doing. There's nowhere that, that Elijah said, hey, I'm going to be taken up from you today, and that's why you need to stay near me. But you find Elisha having this sixth sense, so to speak, of recognizing that something's going on. It's, it's his spidey senses. Come on, y'all. It's it's It's... Jokingly, but Huey McDonald is the greatest fisherman on the planet Earth, especially in freshwater with bass. You've never really been fishing until you've been with Huey McDonald. Pretty sure he's fished with every lake in the state of Florida. That's my father-in-law, by the way. And I've been with him in the lakes, and we, he will jokingly do this for the kids' sake. He'll take the water, splash it up into his nose, and go, the fish are that way. The joke is that he is so accustomed to the life of the fish, so part of their, their, their world that he can smell the very direction that the fish are at, right? Um, that's that image that you get. But the truth is that while we joke about it with that, there's oftentimes other things that you sense. We all do. Every husband has sensed when their wife is mad. She didn't say a word. It may or may not have even been in her body language. She can walk into the room and every husband has this thought. I just hope it's not me. <laughs> Gentlemen, can I get an amen? Like as though, if she's mad at somebody, I just hope I'm not the one. I don't know what she's mad at. It could be me. I just hope it's not me, right? Because we can fight this enemy if it's somebody else, but I don't want to have to, right? So, so you can sense, even without her saying anything, you can sense because you've become so accustomed to your wife and so intimate with your wife that you can even sense when she's not Okay. You, you see this like a, as a Floridian and even others that come, it doesn't take long. You can sense a hurricane coming or a big storm. You can walk outside and you can feel the slight difference in the, in the temperature and you can smell the difference in the air and you can sense there's a storm coming even when your eyes don't see anything yet. Are you with me? There is a sixth sense and Elisha has been walking with Elijah now for six years. 
walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and sensing what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of himself and inside of Elijah. They were tight. He was his armor bearer. He was right beside him in every single place. He had probably never been disobedient once until this moment. He was always there, always next to him, listening to him breathe, listening to him snore, watching him eat. He was always there and had such a relationship with the prophet Elijah that he's going, something is coming. Something is coming. Do you have such a sense with the Holy Spirit that you can recognize what's coming before you see it with your eyes? That you can sense there's something in the air. I don't know how to put my finger on it. I don't know how to explain it, but the winds are changing. There's a new season going on. Can you sense what the spirit realm is doing? Because one of the things that happens far too often in our Christian circles is that we don't sense what the spirit's doing because we're so caught up in what the news is saying. We watch the news. We know what's happening in the world. We know the controversies. We know the places that we are, are, are disunified. We know the arguments. We know which side of the political structure that we stand on. We know all of those things and you can see them with your eyes and somebody's explaining them to you on the news. But you get so caught up in that that you cannot sense what the Spirit is saying. In fact, sometimes we're not even all that interested in what the Spirit is saying because I don't need to know what the Spirit says because I know what Fox News says. <clears throat> and so, so are we at the place where we can sense from the Holy Spirit that something's going on here, something that's beyond my natural capacity, something I can't see with my own eyes, something is going on. Can, can I tell you that something is going on inside the church and the body of Christ right now? We'll get to more of that in a second, but, but in, in whatever it is, we'll unpack this in a second a little bit, but whatever it is, I don't want to miss it. How many just look at your neighbor and say, I don't want to miss this thing. You, you could be Aerosmith, you know, for a moment. I don't want to miss this thing. I don't want to miss this thing. <laughs> See, Elijah kept telling him to stay. Elijah's like, Elisha, stay here. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not leaving your sight. This might be the only time in Elisha's life as his servant that he was ever disobedient to the master. He's supposed to be being dis to be obedient. That's his job. But he's like, no, no, you don't understand. I sense something's going on and I am not leaving your side. When worlds start shaking around you, you better not leave the side of Jesus Christ. And what begins to happen is, is there's all these reasons that he probably should leave his side, right? Uh, Elijah told him to, his master told him to do these things. And, and the cities needed him that he's telling him to stay at. And the school of the prophets that were there seemed to need him as Elisha would probably be an elder in the school of the prophets. But Elijah's, Elisha's saying, listen, you, you, you can't pay me enough to leave you. Something's going on. I sense this. I can't see it, but something's going on. And I'm going to be right here next to you because I refuse to miss it. I refuse to miss it. So he's tenacious with this thing. And it's funny because, because Elijah is trying to get him to do certain things that are good things. It's good for him to stay and minister there. It's good for him to help with the school of the prophets. It's good for him to be obedient. But if you're not careful, you will get so caught up in good things that you miss the God thing. Wow. There are a lot of good things in church. And we're in a moment with lots of good things. The prosperity of the church is amazing right now. And so we have so many good things that we either miss God or replace God with the good things. I love the lights. I love the, the haze. I love the air conditioning. I love the pews. I love the stage. Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with those things. I love first impressions teams and I love small groups. Those are all good things. But if you're not careful, we'll get so distracted by the good things that we miss the God thing. 
There comes a time where you have to set aside the good thing for the God thing. I love preaching the gospel, but if God starts moving, if God, I don't care how much he spoke to me in the week, if God's moving in the service, sometimes I need to set aside the good thing for the God thing. I love that we, we plan certain songs out as a worship team, but, but, but sometimes if God's moving, you got to take that plan that's a good thing, set it aside and say, God, I need a God thing. But it's not just in the church world like this. It's also in your own life. You have many good things that God has given you and blessed you with that sometimes you need to set that aside for a God thing. It's good to sleep when you set it aside for a God thing called getting up and praying. Hmm. So, so, so he, he sees these other prophets, right? The, the company of the prophets. It's like a school of prophetic ministry that, that has been around. And, and, and they go up to Elisha. He's like, I'm staying next to Elijah. And they go up to Elisha and they say, they say, they say, do you know, have you heard, do you sense what we're sensing? We're all the young prophets looking up to him. Do you sense that your master's going to be taken from you today? And I love this. Elisha's like, yep, now shut up. That's my vernacular. NIV says it a little bit differently, but yeah, yeah, yes, I recognize, but we don't need to talk about it. What's he saying right there? I'm not looking for others to verify what I already know. This is so important. I've, I've had for, for a long time, I've, I've had uh, different things that I've known in my spirit and other people get excited when somebody else verifies it. And I'm not even saying that's wrong, but prophet so-and-so said this and prophet so-and-so said that and national figures, they said revival's coming or this and that. And I'm going, yeah, I've known that for a long time. Here's the thing. Stop relying on what everybody else says and recognize your own spirit that's within you. It's good to have prophets. I'm glad they're prophesying certain things. But if we become dependent on their prophecies, we miss the, our own being led by the Spirit of God. And, and, and what happens, he says, he says, just be quiet about it. Why? Because people like that love to talk. We can call these church people. We love to talk about what it would look like when God moves, how it would happen when God moves. We love to have a small group to discuss what the Bible's teachings on God's movings are. We love to talk about evangelism and what it would look like if we evangelized, what it would look like if somebody got saved. All the intellectuals get in a big circle and we talk, 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 talk. <laughs> Elisha's saying, listen, we're not going to talk about it. I'm going to live it. You know, the other things that starts happening as soon as you start talking about something instead of living it is it becomes a show. They, they watch. In fact, if you were to, if you were to keep uh, reading on in the story, we'll see it in just a second. But later you're going to see the company of prophets watching what's happening from the other side of the Jordan River. They're, they're watching what's happening, not entering into what's happening. They watch from the other side. It's like a show. If we're not careful as church people, hear me, you'll start watching what happens on the stage instead of being a part of what happens. If we're not careful, we'll turn church into Netflix. I'll just flip through the channels and find the one that I want, that I like the best show. I like the best communicator. I like the best worship team. And it's just a show. And I sit back and I watch what's happening instead of entering into what's happening. So we're on one side of the Jordan watching, uh, watching Elisha go up and Elijah go up in heaven and the mantle falling and all this that will happen in a minute. And so we're watching it all but we're not a part of it all. I don't want to miss a thing and I want to be right smack dab in the middle of what God's doing. Is anybody with me? Yeah. <coughs> Look at your neighbor and say, you picked a good day to come to church. And so, so they're, they're watching. They're watching. And when you watch and when you only talk about it and when you watch, you end up doubting. 
And, and, and you, we won't even get to it in this passage. You can read it on your own time later. But later, after Elijah does go up into heaven, it's those same prophets that go, oh, well, 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 well maybe we need to go look for his body. His dead body is somewhere. Yeah. They're doubting what has been done right in front of Elisha. You always doubt when you're not in the middle of it. Yeah. It's easy to doubt when you're sitting back in your chair watching what's going on. Oh, look, that person fell over. That's just, that pastor pushed him over. That person pushed. And, and we doubt, but you don't doubt when you're right in the middle of it. When you're the one praying for somebody, you're the one being prayed for. You don't doubt when you're in the middle of the miracle, but you love to doubt when you're on the outside looking in. What am I saying? Church is not a show. And I'm looking for people in our church in the move of God that's coming that's not enticed by wanting to sit back and watch what's happening. They want to be a part of what's happening. Anybody want to be a part of what God is doing at Arise and in the church of the future? Oh, my goodness. All right, let's, let's keep reading. Let's read verse 7. Through 10. Is that right? My goodness. I only got one point down. Seven through 10. <clears throat> 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do before I am taken from you. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. He, he, he seems to know that there's something coming. There's something on this horizon. Can, can I tell you that there is a greater awakening coming? There's, there's a greater anointing coming, and that's what Elisha is experiencing. But in the church of America today, there's a greater awakening that is coming in our midst. If you stop watching the news and start listening to the Spirit, you'll start sensing these things. And so, so this, this great awakening happened in the 1700s. It was beautiful. I, I, I mentioned it back on the July 4th message. Go back and watch that. It was an amazing, amazing thing. And then you had the second great awakening that happened in the 1800s. It was awesome. It was great. But then I believe with all my spirit that there is a third great awakening. And I'm going to call it a greater awakening. It's a greater awakening that's on the verge of becoming a thing in the United States of America. And when you sense what God is doing, you begin to recognize his spirit in our midst in the way that he is moving. Some people say, how could you say that? Look at the America. It's, 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 everything is dysfunctional right now. And we're all frustrated with each other. And, and this and that's going on. And, 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 and there's no unity. And, and, and COVID's happening. And so, so, so church attendance is not even what it used to be. And, and how can you say that? I can only tell you from nature, it's always darkest just before dawn. Come on. And if you will stop focusing on what is happening with your eyes and feel with your spirit, hear with your spirit, man, you will find that there is a lion of the tribe of Judah that is warming up his vocal cords. You will find that God is not done with you yet. He is not given up. And there is a remnant of believers who are calling out to God that he is replying to. And there is something that's coming, baby. There is something coming. It's a greater awakening. And I love it because we get to this place and Elijah looks at him and says, what do you want from me? In other words, you won't leave me. I keep telling you to stay, like, stay here, stay here, stay here. You won't leave me. You're stuck to my side. So what do you want? And I love his response because immediately he doesn't have to think about it, doesn't have to pray about it, doesn't have to go to counseling, doesn't have to like sit down and make a marker board of, of good and bad. Like immediately he says, I want a greater anointing. 
I want a double portion anointing. That, that, that's what's reserved for the firstborn. I want to be like your firstborn. He even calls him father later. He sees himself as a son of Elijah, even though they're not naturally, biologically father and son. He sees himself that way and he says, that's what I want. Can I tell you that the prosperity of America has got us confused on what we should be wanting in the church? Oh, I want a church with good youth ministry. That's a good thing. It's not a God thing necessarily. I want a church with good preaching. I want a church with good worship team. I want, and, and the prosperity has made us lose sight of what actually matters. Where's the God things in the midst of the good thing? Where are the people that God just say, I just want more of Jesus. I just want more of his presence. I just want to be in a place that he shows up and I walk out differently. I just want to be in a place that I walk in empty and I leave full. Where is Jesus in this? And revival's coming to those kind of people that don't get so distracted by the stuff of church that might be good, but they're so caught up in the presence of God. Revival is coming to those kind of people. People that say, I need Jesus more than I need anything, anything, anything. And how you steward your life today will determine if you're ready for this greater anointing tomorrow. Because a lot of people say, oh, I want it, but we're not stewarding our life today to receive it. I can want everything all I want, but until I'm stewarding my life in such a way that I'm praying more, I'm seeking his face more, I'm igniting my own inner hunger for him, you're not going to receive it. You, you live today so you can receive tomorrow. It's called faithfulness. People are like, I want God to bless my finances, but you haven't tithed, you haven't given, you haven't been faithful in your finances that you want God to bless it. I want God to send revival, but you haven't prayed for revival. Not really. I want God to do miracles in my life, but I'm not praying for miracles in my life. I want God to do miracles through my hands, but every time God sends somebody that needs a miracle, you refuse to pray for them. You become Cam Newton who's backing up instead of diving in. It's scary to dive in. You'll lose friends as soon as you start diving in. Everybody won't like you as soon as you start diving in. When you really give yourself fully over to Christ, you will lose relationships. You will become somebody that others make fun of. They'll call you a Bible thumper, or a holy roller, whatever they, but, but, but you will lose some stuff when you dive in. It's scary. You may pray for the person diving in and nothing happens. It's scary. It'll crucify your own flesh. But that's where God has called us to be. And for far too long, the church is backing up instead of diving in. Let's read verses 11 through 14. I'll wrap up in just a second. Verse 11 says, And they were walking along and talking together. Suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took, his, took hold of his garments and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it, just like Elijah did. Remember that. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. You could keep reading in your own time. There's lots of good stuff there, but for what we're saying, I'll stop in that moment. Whew. Number three, this is our time. We must seize this moment. That moment that you see right there with Elisha and Elijah, it was Elisha's moment. It was his time. He had to seize that moment. But sometimes we have our own moments that we have to seize within the church. Now, when I say within the church or in these type of 
language that we often use. What most of us, because we're American Christians, picture is the body like the, like the church building or some kind of mass of people. Do you realize that you are the church? There is, like, like a building is a building. You are the church. And when we assemble together, we become the very body of Christ as we work together and pray for one another and minister to one another. You are the church, not the building. You are the church. That means that you are a perfect candidate for God to use. Just as much as me, just as much as Pastor Ada or anybody else, you are the one that God wants to use. Amen. This is the problem. We don't get this. I, was, I told our staff this week, I was pondering this during worship next, last week, and this week we had a staff service and I was sharing this with our staff. I said, I feel like one of the problems in our church, in every church, is somehow along the line, we got the idea that Pastor Jason was the worship leader. Or this morning, Erica. I said, what do you mean? Of course they are. No, no, no. You're the worship leader. Yeah. They're just the ones on the stage that choose the songs and sing them publicly. But you are just as much a worship leader as Pastor Jason or Erica or anybody else that leads worship on our stage is. Yeah. You, you. But until we own that responsibility, we will become part of the show that watches what happens on the stage, applauds a little bit, feels good a little bit. What if you're supposed to worship for your family? What if you're supposed to worship for your role? What if you're supposed to be the one who is leading worship in your own spirit and your own heart, and you are just as much a worship leader as anybody on the stage? If you change your mindset with that, it could change everything. But you could do that over and over and over and over with all kinds of things. What if Pratyash is not a church evangelist? What if you're supposed to be the church evangelist? What if, what if you're supposed to be the church preacher, not me? What if I just do it on the stage, but you get to do it everywhere you go in the community during the week? If we, if we actually understand that God has anointed you in all your imperfections and all your lack of education and all the excuses that we can make, when you really understand that God has anointed you, that is a powerful place to be. Because the disciples were untrained, ordinary men. Come on. Abraham was too old. Timothy was too young. Moses stuttered. Rahab was a prostitute, for crying out loud. Gideon was a coward. Mary was a virgin. Elijah was suicidal. John the Baptist ate bugs. And Leah was ugly. There is an anointing for you to do the very things God is calling you to do. What we have to do is steward the responsibility of our anointing and stop passing it off to somebody on the stage. It's not a show. It's our lifestyle. It's who we are. And if you want to be part of this revival, it's not going to happen because you come and sit in a chair. It's going to happen because you choose to step in because you lunge into the pile, not step backwards. This is our time, both in this church and in the body of Christ, and especially in this area. This is our time. Two words that'll keep you from what God wants to do. Two words, yesterday. The older you are, the more you get caught up in yesterday because you got lots of good experiences from yesterday. Yesterday, God was moving. You give me that old time religion. If y'all would just sing a hymn every once in a while, God would move, I'm telling you. If, 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 give me that old, give me some sawdust on the floor, tent revivals. Oh, I love how you're preaching today, not just talking, you're spitting. That's revival. Yeah. Right? 
What happened to Sunday through Thursday night revivals or Sunday through Sunday revivals? And it's all about the past. It's all about yesterday. Remember what God did yesterday. It was so good back in the day. And it was, so, give me that old time religion back. And we get trapped in that. Or if you're younger or either way, but more commonly, you get trapped in tomorrow. Oh, I'm gonna, God's going to use me when I graduate. God's going to use me whenever I get married. God's going to use me whenever I get uh, fiscally responsible and I have money. God's going to use me whenever I move out. God's going to use me whenever I graduate from college. God's going to use me whenever this or that. And we start making all these excuses. When my kids finally grow up and I can have my own freedom, God will use me then. And so we get caught up in yesterday or tomorrow. We go back and forth and we're singing, uh, you know, some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly. And we're so future focused, I'll fly away. Or give me that old time religion. What about the God of today? Yeah. What about the God of now? Well, what about the God who said, I am who I am? Yeah. When, when Moses stood before God at the fiery furnace or fiery, fiery bush, when Moses stood before God and he said, tell me your name, tell me who's sending me to Pharaoh. God said, I am not. I was not. I'm going to be, I am. That's a very powerful thing for you because it's one thing to celebrate what God did do. It's one thing to talk about what God is going to do, but do you realize that God is with you right now in your present moment? <clears throat> That's important because you need God now. I'm thankful for God yesterday. I'm thankful for what he's done. I am also thankful for what I believe he will do, but I also need God like, like today. Like today, I wanna strangle that dude that cut me off. I need God today. Like, like, like today I have a board meeting that I don't know that I can handle. I need God today. You need God in the middle of the fiery furnace who is a now God, who's in the middle of the lion's den, who is a now God, not just a future God. Amen. And if God's going to be that for you, then you have to start recognizing this is our time now to be what God has called us to be. See, see, if you don't, if you don't, you'll end up living in this, what, 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 um, you ever know those, those fitting two people? I'm fitting to do this. I'm fitting to do that. I'm fitting to do this. I'm fitting to do that. They never do anything. And the fitting two people always turn into the Idas. Like I married an Ada, but they turn into the Idas. Oh, I'd have made state if I didn't blow out my knee. I'd, be in the, I'd, I'd have been in the NFL right now if I didn't do this. And they turn into Idas. Idas. Living in the past. We're still hoping for the future, but never experiencing God in the present. We are in a present moment. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Seize this present moment that God has put us in. If we don't, we find ourselves in trouble. I've said this for years. I'm not the original one to say it. I don't know who is, but I believe this with all my heart. Cemeteries are probably the richest place on the planet Earth. Not because they are full of gold and jewelry of, of those who have passed along but because they died with dreams that were unfulfilled. They died with, with, with degrees that were never earned, with technology that was inspired inside of them that they never stepped out and did anything with, books they never wrote, that they died with the book still in their spirit and never wrote it before they passed away. Cemeteries are the richest place on the earth because so many of us back up instead of diving in. Oh, it's one day I'm gonna do this. When I retire, I'm gonna do this. When I feel better, I'm gonna do this. And we end up taking the anointing to our grave. You want to know one of the saddest scriptures in the Bible? I didn't say this first service. 
One of the saddest scriptures in the Bible. Way later, Elisha, Elisha dies. They throw his body in the ground. Some raiders come by and they go to throw another dead body in the grave of Elisha. And so they have this dead body. They throw him in the grave of Elisha. When the dead body touches Elisha's body, the body comes back to life. People are like, whoa, that's awesome. No, it's horrible. That means Elisha died with his anointing. Elijah passed it off. Elisha died with it. It doesn't do any good in a cemetery. I don't want to die with the dreams and with the ideas of what God is putting in my spirit. I don't want to miss the very thing that God's doing in this now moment. There has to be a place where this becomes that or that becomes this. When I wrote the book, Where's the Beef, years ago, I, I, I started out by calling it, and the original idea behind it was this is that. Kept the same idea as it went on, but the title changed. Because there has to be a moment where this that we're experiencing today was that which was prophesied yesterday. I grew up in church prophecy. I grew, how many of you grew up in Pentecostal churches? Man, if you grew up in Pentecostal churches, you saw some crazy stuff and heard some crazy stuff. Man, God bless all of us. We survived. But I remember every evangelist and prophet would come through town and they'd give these big prophecies over the church. God's going to do this and God's going to do that. And it's going to overflow and the spirit of God is going to overpower everybody. And, and, and people are going to be driving down the road and they're suddenly going to, like the Holy Spirit's going to turn their car into the church. And, and they're going to get saved in the church. And, and all these amazing prophecies, like that's great. Even though as a, even as a child, I was like, why, why don't we just witness to them and invite them to church? But anyway, so, so all these prophecies. They mean nothing if eventually the prophecy is not fulfilled. And sometimes the very prophecies that God has called to be fulfilled are waiting on us to be obedient for the fulfilling. It's not that the prophecy was wrong. It's that God is waiting on us to step up into the right position so we can receive what was. So this is that. The Holy Spirit gets poured out, right? So Acts chapter two, we love it. We're Pentecostal, we're favorite verse, you know, favorite chapter in the Bible. We're all, ah, you know, speaking in tongues. Jesus said, go in Jerusalem and wait. Essentially tarry. That's an old school church word, tarry. Just, just pray, seek my face, tarry. And they're there, mark this, being obedient, seeking the Lord's face. They're there tearing before the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes down, pours out, and flames of fire over their head, and they're speaking in, in earthly tongues and causing a disturbance, and they walk outside, and all this crowd has gathered, and Peter stands up, and he preaches this great message. And in the message, he says this. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You gotta understand, the prophet Joel, that was like 400 years earlier. That wasn't a week ago. That wasn't like prophet so-and-so came by, they prophesied over the house, next week this thing happened. It was 400 years ago. That's, that's, that's like a prophecy in the 1600s coming to pass now. That's a, that's a long time ago. But when the people got in position and were obedient, the 400-year-old prophecy came through the very people of God. And he said, this is that which was prophesied by the Joel. Can I, can I take you deeper for just a second? You do realize, some of you do, Tampa Bay was not originally called Tampa Bay. Hundreds of years ago, when the Spaniards drove their ships into Tampa Bay, they called it the Bay of the Holy Spirit 
because it was Pentecost Sunday when they came into Tampa Bay. And so they referred to it as the Bay of the Holy Spirit in Spanish, not English, but Bay of the Holy Spirit. And that was its name for a long time until it was changed to Tampa Bay. I grew up hearing testimonies and prophecies that God was going to do a new revival, a, a great awakening, a new, a new move of the Spirit, and it was going to be starting in Tampa Bay area. I grew up hearing that. It was normal to me. But what if there was prophecies without even realizing they were prophecies hundreds of years ago that we get to put ourselves in a position for? If you stop looking with your natural eyes for a second and start looking with your spirit realm, let me show you some stuff. You know, it can... We're referring to ourselves now as Champa Bay, right? Come on, Champa Bay. Love it, Champa Bay. We're gonna do a series in September. It's gonna be so much fun called Champa Bay. It's gonna be awesome. But we're referring to ourselves that way. Have you ever thought about all three pictures of our Champa Bay teams are miraculous? Almost God things. First of all, the Lightning have won the championship for two years in a row. Anybody notice we're in Tampa Bay with a hockey team? How did that even happen in the first place? Nobody in Tampa like grew up playing hockey. Like, is it, it's the last time it snowed, I think was 1977. It's like the year I was born. That, that's a rather miraculous thing. But even more miraculous, we get the Tampa Bay Rays with their pitiful payroll bunch of no-named kids. Every time they need raise, they go to another team. Need a raise, not raise. They go to another team. A team that's like the Bad News Bears that goes all the way to the championship. All the way, wins the American League pennant. Goes all the way to the World Series. That's almost miraculous. There is no reason they should be able to do that. It defies all the odds. It's counterintuitive. Like all you Yankees fans, y'all should be winning them all the time. All your money is, you got one player making more than our whole team. True. Defies all the odds. That's, that's almost, almost miraculous. And then you get a team. Is it, I, I, now don't quote me on this. I believe it's 11 years since the Bucks made the playoffs. And during those 11 years, we stunk. Like I'm a Bucks fan and I can say, it. We, like we weren't like close to the playoffs. We weren't like a really good team that just had some bad luck. Like we stunk, man. Couldn't draft anybody right. Everything went wrong. Just every, we stunk. And then in one season, and even watch the season, you realize as a Bucks fan, halfway through the year, we still pretty much stunk. I know we want to forget all about that. We were not good in the first half of the season. All of a sudden in the, Last quarter of the season, the Bucks catch fire. They can't be stopped by anybody. Go through the Green Bay Packers and their incredible offense. Go, go through the New Orleans Saints and their incredible offense. Go to the, the, the Chiefs, which nobody gave us a real legitimate shot of winning that game and absolutely crushed the Chiefs. Almost seems miraculous. This isn't the New York Yankees who are supposed to win. What, what if, and I'm not taking away from the players, I'm taking away from the teams. What if God's choosing to turn the attention of America onto a bay of the Holy Spirit and he's trying to awaken the church? But the church is so busy watching the news and arguing over things that you don't have a real position in 
that we can't sense what the Spirit of God is doing in our midst, and we miss it. We miss it. We miss it. What if there's a bigger thing going on here than what we can recognize? I'm just saying, we have to seize this moment. You have to have the action to go along with it. So, so this is Elisha's moment, right? This radical thing happens. All of a sudden, the chariot of fire swims and comes right in between the two. And in a whirlwind, whether it's the fire or not, the whirlwind takes Elijah up into heaven. And, and Elisha's watching all this happen. And as he watches it, he looks up and the mantle that represents the Holy Spirit begins to fall down. That mantle represented the anointing. It represented the very thing he was crying out for, that he wanted. It represented that. But you can you put yourself in that moment as he cries out, Father, Father, what's going on? Like, like he sensed something was going to happen, but this was bigger than what he sensed. Oh, please, God, do something bigger than what we're sensing something bigger than just a local revival. Do something bigger than just a rise. Do something bigger than what we can fathom with our own minds. And so he, Elisha knew something was coming, but he didn't know that was coming. God, shock us with your glory. Shock us with your glory. And so he watches this thing fall down, completely stunned out of his mind more than likely. And he watches this mantle. Will he seize the moment? Is this a Cam Newton moment where he steps back? I don't know if I can do this without Elijah. I can do it with Elijah with me. But now me being the head honcho, I don't know if I can do it. Will he seize the moment? This is the story of the church in the story of the Bible. From the beginning, you have to seize the moments when God is doing something. Noah is banging, building an ark, hammering in nails while his neighbors are probably laughing at him thinking he's lost his mind. Moses walks up to the Red Sea. All of his natural inclinations would be to turn around and fight or surrender or something. Instead, I'm gonna put a staff in the water. Okay, God. It's a moment of action that changes everything. Joshua keeps marching around Jericho time after time after time and nothing's happening. It's a moment of action and obedience. David charges Goliath. 12 spies came back and they said, 10 of them said, we can't take the land. And they never got to the land because they were disobedient. Two said, we can. And they entered into the land. Daniel said, I will pray even if you throw me in a lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, I will not bow even if you throw me in a fiery furnace. It was a moment. It was this, this pivotal moment of stepping in. That's why we celebrate them. <laughs> The woman with the issue of blood said, I will press through the crowd. That's the only reason you even have ever heard of her. Zacchaeus said, I wanna see who this Jesus is. I'm gonna climb up in the top of a tree. That's the only reason you know who he is. Peter has this moment on the day of Pentecost that even though he was a failure just, just days before it had messed up where he's gonna preach the first sermon. In 1959, Bill Wynn goes to the Assemblies of God district office and said, God didn't, God, I'm not gonna try to plant a church in Brandon. God called me to plant a church in Brandon. It was a pivotal moment. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for his faith and his obedience and his willingness to pick up a mantle. 11 years ago, a little, the, the, the small church that we had on Kings Avenue, they took a risk on this barely 32 year old pastor 
and thought, oh, oh, maybe, maybe he's the one. Maybe I sense God doing something. Five or six years ago, we started taking offerings and they said, maybe, maybe if we give sacrificially, we could rescue lives in India, in Nepal, in Elsa's house of hope. Maybe. The story of the church, the story of your life, the story of my life are these critical moments. Will I pick up the mantle of God or will I not? And picking it up is an action. It means something, it costs something. And this is the moment, this is his, this is his pivotal moment. He's gonna go from a face in the crowd to the greatest prophet in Israel's history if he picks it up. This is the moment he goes from a face in the crowd, a nobody, to somebody that everybody would know his name. This is the moment he goes from a regular Joe in a mediocrity life of serving the prophet to becoming the prophet. Does he pick it up or not? It's Cam Newton. Do you dive in? It's gonna cost you something if you dive in. Make no mistake, Jesus said count the cost. It's gonna cost you something if you dive in. It's gonna hurt you. It's not gonna be all easy. It's not gonna be fun and games. You might lose some sleep. You might lose some meals. You might give in ways that, that seem radical. It's gonna cost you something if you dive into that pile, but it'll cost you a lot more if you don't. And so Elisha reaches down and he picks up the mantle and he throws it over himself. The mantle that represented represented the very presence of God, the double portion that he was praying for. It represented this. And you know the funny thing about picking up a mantle like this? It doesn't always feel miraculous. Like I wish, it would be nice like, like if like you suddenly felt like a different person. Like the glory of God just overshadowed you. Obedience doesn't always feel like that. In fact, it frequently doesn't feel like that. I've had moments where I prayed for people for healings and, and I didn't even feel God's presence and I probably wasn't even praying in that much faith and I was just kind of doing it and I prayed and they are miraculously healed. I remember one time I prayed for somebody and, and I was praying for their back and I was just kind of praying and I hate to say I was going through the motions but I was probably a little bit going through the motions and I'm praying for their spine and their back and I literally felt the bones crack and like go back into place. I literally felt it as I'm praying for I didn't feel anything necessarily. I've had other moments where I felt God's presence all over me and so strong and I prayed for somebody and I genuinely believed and nothing happened. Why? Because it's never been about you anyway. It's never been about me anyway. God will use me and not use me and it's not about whether I feel him or not, although I want to feel him. And so Elisha picks up this mantle and he puts it around his own head probably and he's going, this is just the way I see it in my mind. I might be wrong, but it's how I see it. I don't feel any different. I don't feel suddenly more spiritual. I don't, you, you do know like when you finally graduate from Bible college, you don't feel more spiritual. When you finally get married, you don't feel more spiritual. When you finally have these things that were stepping stones that you thought, when I do this, I'll be ready. You don't feel more spiritual. So he puts on the mantle. I don't necessarily feel any different. So let me just test this thing. So he takes the mantle, says, God, you were with Elijah. And when he hit the Jordan, it parted. So if you're with me, let me hit the Jordan and let it part. And he reaches down and slaps the Jordan just like Moses had done so many years before. And suddenly the Jordan starts parting in front of him. And all the school of the prophets who were busy talking and watching a show start going, ooh, look at that guy. And, and, and all of a sudden he rises to the place that God had called him to be because of his obedience. Yeah. What am I saying? Stand up with me. Stand, I got to close. Stand up with me. What am I saying? What am I saying? There are these moments 
that we have to seize within the history of the church, Arise and the capital C church. There are moments of awakening and God is calling us deeper. He's calling us to a higher standard. He's calling us to pray more, to seek his face more, to reestablish a hunger within us. And it might not always feel spiritual. It might not always feel like God's grace is suddenly on it, but he's calling us to spend time with him, to reawaken the hunger within us for him, to cry out to him afresh and anew. And he's calling us to leave the show and become part of what God is doing. There's an awakening coming. Who needs a fresh mantle? Who needs a fresh mantle? Come on, church. I'm tired of living on yesterday's grace. And I'm tired of talking about what God's gonna do tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of the Lord. Today is the moment where I step into my anointing. I stop watching the show. I stop, I stop applauding. The, I want to be in it. I want to be everything God has for me. Come on, church. Come on, church. Are you hungry for it? Oh, there's something coming. There's a momentum that's building. Oh, come on. Let me, let me invite our prayer team to come on up front. You guys on the prayer team and community. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. If you are in tune with the Holy Spirit, it's not just me. I hear so many other people sharing this. Tampa will become the Bay of the Holy Spirit all over again. And there is a revival that's starting on East Coast and West Coast that'll meet in the middle. That's greater than any one church. It's greater than any one preacher. It's greater than any one leader. It's, it's being led by the Holy Spirit of God. And every church needs to be filled. And every church needs to be experiencing God. There is a revival that's coming. And I know it looks bleak and you watch what's happening in our world and it's so sad and this and that. If you stop looking with your natural eyes and say, God, show me in the spirit realm what's happening. There's a revival that's coming. The question is, will you dive into the scrum or will you back up? Will you dive after the ball? Will you go after God's presence with everything that's inside of you? Will you throw yourself at his feet? Or will you do what Cam Newton did in that moment and back up, hesitate, say it's not worth it? What will you do? Elisha picked up the mantle. I can tell you as best as I can, I'm picking up this mantle and we're gonna run with it and Arise is not gonna talk about revival. We're gonna be right in the middle of revival, but I want some people with me. I want people with me. Hungry, hungry. Jesus, hungry for more.